from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Well, the 2021 College Roadshow is in Boilermaker territory this weekend. And after a big win against Iowa last week, Purdue University's energy can be felt both in and outside the classroom. And we'll show you just how over the next 60 minutes. Soybean prices surge. We'll tell you what's injecting optimism into prices more than halfway through harvest this year. Weaning Indiana farmers off traditional soybeans and corn. They were looking for transformative projects. And what is more transformative than changing the Corn Belt? We'll show you how Purdue and others are working to diversify the Corn Belt. A recent Purdue grad is finding his own flight pattern and it's taking off. I wasn't expecting to be as busy as I was this summer. And in John's world. The surprising energy crunch. The 2021 U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow from Purdue University is brought to you by Golden Harvest. Learn how Golden Harvest is changing the game in corn and soybean products and providing service to farmers by visiting goldenharvestseeds.com. Now for the news, the backlog at Western Ports is continuing to grow. Earlier this week, 100 ships were waiting to enter the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach, a new record. The last record was 97, and that was set just last month. And the current number was expected to grow with 45 ships scheduled to arrive this week. For agriculture, it's not just an issue of imports, but also exports. You know what, maybe a 17-hour trip uh, might end up being five or six weeks, and that uh, fruit that would have been fine is now not suitable. And so we chose choose not to risk it. I think, uh, you know, big export crops like, say, citrus coming up, you know, that's that's going to be a big problem. L.A. Port Authority say last month the port saw its biggest container volume on record. They say export volume continued to slide last month, down 42 percent from last year. The executive director of the port saying they haven't seen exports that low since 2002. And the ratio of imports to exports is now six to one. And one economist here at Purdue University says it's more than just an influx of consumers buying goods. That's the problem at ports. There, there are lots of contributing factors, right? We've got um, maybe there's a trucking issue with uh, the shortage of trucks or drivers able to unload warehouses uh, surrounding the ports, and that's going to push stuff back into the uh, in, into the ports themselves. Um, so I think there are lots of contributing factors. I wouldn't just say it's um, US, U.S. consumers buying a lot of stuff. Well, corn harvest passed the halfway mark as of the last USDA report and contract talks between John Deere and its 10,000 striking union workers starting up again after workers went on strike last week. The strike starting last Thursday after members overwhelmingly rejected a newly proposed contract. That deal would have meant 5% raises for some workers and 6% for others. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack joining striking workers on the picket lines during a trip to Iowa. The strike covering 14 deer plants, including seven in Iowa, four in Illinois, one in Kansas, Colorado, and Georgia. The last time deer workers went on strike was back in 1986, as growers continue to worry that if they break down, they won't be able to source the parts to get back up and running. And while the West did get some snow this week, including central parts of California, those storms alone won't be enough to pull the state out of drought. And with a forecast this winter calling for another La Nina weather pattern, experts say the West 
may still see little relief. Brad Rippey, meteorologist for USDA, says they also expect areas of southwest that saw some relief from the drought this summer actually may slip back into drought this winter due to the below average snowpack. There's also concern for the winter wheat crop in the Great Plains due to the possibility of a drier than normal winter. But as we move to the north, there is a little bit of promise of hope for the Pacific Northwest, possibly even northern California, extending eastward across the northern tier of the country that we could see some drought relief in those areas most likely to see significant relief in the Pacific Northwest. Well, ethanol production topped the million barrel a day mark for the first time in two months earlier this month. The U.S. Energy Information Administration says at the same time, inventories started to decline. It reports production jumped an average of 1.032 million barrels a day during the week ending October 8th. That's up 978,000 barrels a day on average from the previous week. Well, the Midwest and East has seen unseasonably warm temperatures this fall, while the West saw winter weather this week. And we will have a check of your weather next. Time now for a check of weather. Well, meteorologist Mike Hoffman has been a familiar face for years on this show. He's actually been with Ag Day and the Farm Journal family for nearly two decades. But this weekend, he has some exciting personal news as pretty soon he will be able to share these seats with his wife here at Purdue even more often. Mike, I'm not ready for this news. It's bittersweet, uh, but you do have some exciting news to share with us this weekend. Well, Tyne, you're absolutely right. Uh, my wife and I uh, will be retired. I'll be retiring, I guess. <laughs> I guess I should say. And we will be moving to West Lafayette and uh, retiring there. So, yeah, I'll be spending a lot more time in ross Stadium there right where you're sitting, probably not in one of those padded seats, but nonetheless, uh, a nice seat. Uh, I'll tell you what though, I have absolutely loved, and I'm not quite done, it's gonna be early December, but I have absolutely loved speaking to farmers for the past two decades. The farming community knows weather, and they know the challenges in forecasting the weather, and that's something that I have always appreciated. So let's get to the weather for today. You can see the root zone continues to show a wet area for the central and southern Mississippi Valley. Some wet pockets through the northern tier of states as well. That's unusual, isn't it? Been in a drought most of this growing season. And there you go, North Dakota, South Dakota, many, much of that area now wet as far as the upper levels of the soil is concerned. Out west, it's still mainly dry, but there are some pockets that have had enough moisture to actually give you wet conditions, at least temporarily. Drought monitor shows still those very dry conditions out west, but you've been getting rain over the past several days, and there's more to come as you're going to see. There are areas of dryness kind of getting a little bit uh, larger areas there over the central part of the country. Something to be concerned about, although with this weather pattern, I think we have a fair amount of moisture coming from west to east. You can see on the jet stream, Trough moving through the west into the middle of the country as we head through Wednesday, and that's going to be a slow-moving storm system. Great Lakes in the east as we head through the end of the week, and it looks like that cutoff sits there with another piece of it coming in as we head through the end of the weekend. So that could be an interesting setup. That's colder air, not overly cold air, but uh, a lot chillier than you've seen, and it can be wet in places as well. So let's go day by day on Monday. Storm system over northeastern Missouri, scattered showers through the uh, eastern portions of the country, Mississippi Valley, let's say, and areas a little farther east, 
two more storm systems coming in out west. Those come together, form another uh, storm system for the middle of the country. By Wednesday then, you'll have an in-between day on Tuesday, giving you some nice weather. But there's those uh, showers. And then the uh, slow-moving system off the uh, northeast coast, one more piece of energy coming in out west. By Friday, though, big cutoff low like we showed you. Mainly rain may mix with snow in places, should not accumulate, though. And then you can see those showers into the northeast as well. 30-day outlook for temperatures. I'm going to go below normal, far northern plains into Canada, above normal east, south, and southwest. Precipitation over the next 30 days above normal from the Great Lakes into the northeast, northwest, and below normal for the southern tier of states. Time. Well, Mike actually made this decision much earlier this year, and I've been holding on to hope that maybe he would change his mind and, and not retire just yet. But congratulations, Mike. You are a true gem, and we really appreciate you and value your input on the show. It, it definitely will be missed. All right, well, we need to take a quick break. And then next, we will sit down with two of the authors of the Ag Economy Barometer to see what is reviving soybean demand right now. That's next. Farm Report this weekend from Purdue University. Well, as I mentioned, two authors of the Ag Economy Barometer, Michael Langemeyer, as well as Jim Mintert. And then we have Jason Lust on the program this weekend. Let's start off by talking about that Ag Economy Barometer because lately we've seen other factors besides commodity prices really weighing on producers, Michael, including input cost. And it seems like that price picture is not getting better. It just gets worse by the week. There's two or three things that are weighing on the Ag Economy Barometer right now. One of those is input prices. Uh, Break-even prices for corn and soybeans are up 12% using current input prices. That could go higher. Uh, you know, who knows if, if we've seen the high on, on fertilizer prices or not. Uh, same with seed prices and several other inputs. And so that one of the things uh, weighing in the ag economy barometer. Another one is political uncertainty or policy uncertainty, if you will. What's going to happen with taxes, particularly the state tax? Uh, what's going to happen with some regulations moving forward uh, that, that might impact agriculture? So uh, that, that's that's another very important set of factors impacting the ag economy barometer. Yeah, and when you look at some of the ag supply chain issues that are really weighing on producers, I mean, you look at the West Coast ports, been in a lot of headlines lately. We are seeing exports down as we're having this bottleneck of cargo ships. But you look at the Gulf Coast ports too, we really haven't seen a lot of action down there since the hurricane. Are we catching up to where we need to be to meet some of these levels from demand like countries like China right now, Jim? So a little different story, whether you look at corn or soybeans. The corn picture has looked much better than the soybean side. The soybean side is really lagging relative to last year. I think we're down probably in the ballpark of 40% uh, for the same time of year in, in 2020 versus 2021. On the corn side, things do look better. And so I think it's really an unknown at this point in terms of the availability of shipping, the ability to move product, and also the demand side. And once again, we're a little bit at the mercy of what the decisions are going to be made in, in Beijing. Yeah, when you look at, 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 again, some of these ag supply issues here, I mean, it, it's chaos in some areas. And, and realistically, what's the timeline do you think we're looking at to work through some of these severe bottlenecks that we're seeing, Jason? Well, nobody has a great crystal ball here. And I think uh, if you would have asked me six months ago, I would have probably said, 
by this time, things would be, you know, we'd be some, back to something that looks a little closer to normal. So I'm very reluctant to try to predict, uh, but we can be hopeful. Um, you know, they do say the cure for high prices is high prices. So uh, that, that may incentivize new ports. It may incentivize uh, uh, people to get in the workforce. You know, it, 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 that's a cost too, higher wages, but these things all have ripple effects that are actually needed in some ways to encourage some sense of normalcy. Yeah, and Jim, we're seeing other ports like uh, Houston saying, hey, listen, we can export here. Let's bring some of these goods here so we can and get it out. But do you think that that is the issue when it comes to this overall export picture right now for grains? Is it the ability to ship? No, I don't think it is. I think it's more on the demand side than it is on the ability to ship. It's, it's pretty clear as you look at the data uh, that we saw a big disruption because of the hurricane and that closure on the Mississippi and the loss of those terminals for a while. That capacity has largely come back now, maybe not quite 100%, but it's largely come back. So I think the bigger issue there is, is getting people to buy. Getting people to buy. If China does not come in at the same pace that they did last year, Michael, do you think we can diversify our exports enough to make up for that? Or is China still the key? China is going to be a key player for soybeans, certainly, but we're also very hopeful in corn. Uh, they've been buying quite a bit of corn the last year, and, and hopefully that will continue because uh, that, that will help uh, corn prices. Yeah, when you look at corn, ASF in China, do we really have a clear picture if the herd has recovered enough there that they will need more corn for things like feed? Yeah, long term, I think it, you know they're not only going to try to rebuild the swine herd, they're going to try to uh, expand that swine herd because they, uh, certainly the demand, uh, the per capita demand for, for, uh, uh, for, for livestock is going to continue to increase in China. Uh, and so hopefully we'll have a place there, not only with soybeans, but also corn. What about domestic feed demand, Jason? You look at some of the, you know, the, the, the cattle herd. I know the last report didn't show it, but we are seeing some liquidation. You saw the issue of PERS in, in the U.S. Uh, pork herd. Do you think that we will see demand here for feed rise? Um, you know, I think just on the cattle side, a reduction in inventory numbers is probably going to put some downward pressure on feed demand from the cattle side of things. But, you know, if you look at, at pork and chicken, the stories may be a little bit different there. And, and those tend to be heavier corn and soybean users. So you, you might have a net increase in feed demand, uh, but but they're going to they're responding to those high prices, too. And um, they're going to try to cut back some but just because simply, you know, the cost of feeding those animals is more expensive now than it was a year and a half ago. Now, well, what commodity may hold the best price potential as we enter into 2022? We will ask our ag economists that later on U.S. Farm Report. <laughs> Well, from inputs to the manufacturing of other goods, an energy crunch is creating quite the chaos. Here's John Phipps. China used to import lots of coal from Australia. When the Australian government criticized Beijing for obstructing the study about the origins of COVID, the Chinese government abruptly stopped those imports, which has crippled their own power generation in their rapidly recovering economy. So the Chinese began to import from Europe. And so now Australia is exporting to Europe. That illogical situation and multiple other factors illustrate how the world has blundered into an energy crisis. Coal is one factor, but the largest may be natural gas. Electricity producers had enthusiastically switched to gas turbine plants for very good economic and environmental reasons. 
COVID drastically reduced demand, resulting in US NG prices below two bucks. Meanwhile, LNG gas exports had finally begun to take off, offering some financial hope to all the fracking companies and their NG production. Looking at U.S. Energy Information Agency projections, higher gas prices could prompt fracking to ramp back up idle production, but relief won't come from high prices, won't come until late next year. Farmers, however, are already experiencing it by a truly astronomical nitrogen prices. Last fall, we paid about 450 bucks a ton for ammonia. Our local price today just went over $1,000. This theme of COVID shutdown, coupled with a shift to greener energy, along with some really bad decisions, has led to a network of shortages that threatens home heating in Britain and Germany, electricity in Brazil, and bizarrely enough, solar panel production, as the availability of power in China has sharply cut silicon production. But wait, there's more. Nuclear power plants were being shut down around the globe. Climate change-induced drought cut hydropower output due to low reservoir levels. We've all seen photos of Lake Mead behind Hoover Dam, which is running about 25% lower output. It's even more severe in Brazil, where hydropower supplies over 60% of their electricity. In this turmoil, the U.S. may be in better shape than other countries due to our considerable resources, generation capacity, infrastructure, and above all, wealth. The transition to greener energy sources was kind of limping along before COVID, but its economic whipsaw of demand and prices has created a true global energy crunch. The collective noun for a group of swans is a lamentation. Given the black swan events we're seeing in energy, it's aptly named. Thanks, John. And we'll continue to follow these black swan events and the entire supply chain issues coming up in the coming weeks as well as months. Well, when we come back, it seems there's no shortage of antique tractors. And one of our favorite Indiana bankers is sharing his tractor with Tractor Tales next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Kubota. Together we do more. Welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we're off to Southern Indiana to share with you a classic John Deere. We have behind us a 1972 John Deere 4020 power shift. In the final production cycle of the 72 4020s, that tractor was manufactured about halfway through the cycle, and it was shipped to Albany, Georgia on February 3rd, 1972. I had been looking for particularly a 1972 power shift for about five to seven years. The market had been very, very generous to those tractors when you looked at what they were bringing. And I found the tractor at Polk Auction Company in New Paris, Indiana. It was in the condition that you see as we look at it. However, after I bought the tractor and I went out to get it to load it, on the side of the tractor was an envelope hanging that had receipts for approximately $27,000 worth of work that had been done on the tractor. The transmission, the engine, the pump that I was unaware of when I bought the tractor. Even with the condition it's in, my intention is that it will go a complete nut and bolt full restoration in 
about 18 months. I want to drive the tractor a little bit, use a little bit, make sure there are no other issues remaining. I do have weights that are to be added to the front and the rear wheels. I do have an original quick hitch to be added. So when I get finished, it will have a full, complete nut and bolt restoration. The 4020 has always been a tractor near and dear to my heart simply because it was the first John Deere tractor that I ever drove when I was about eight years old. Thanks, Greg. Well, what if you could become a price maker instead of a price taker just by switching up the crops you grow? A group at Purdue is putting that theory to the test. We'll show you how next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. The 2021 U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow from Purdue University is brought to you by Golden Harvest. Learn how Golden Harvest is changing the game in corn and soybean products and providing service to farmers by visiting goldenharvestseeds.com. Welcome back. Well, just fly over Indiana and you will quickly see that even though it's a state that grows tomatoes and spearmint, for most farmers here, corn and soybeans are the staples. But are there other cash crops that could sprout from driving diversity? That question is now being put to the test right here. Ginger uh, on the right, turmeric on the left. Crops that aren't custom to traditional Indiana farmers. Uh, we actually plant uh, and get these things started about February in the greenhouse. Have a home here. The Purdue student farm isn't just an outdoor classroom. It's exposing untraditional crops that can grow here in Indiana. We'll start harvesting and pulling them out of the ground then. From fresh tomatoes and peppers to uncovering a variety of kale. These crops could soon have a permanent place on Indiana farms thanks to a $10 million grant from USDA. It's called hashtag diverse corn belt and our goal is to work with farmers and other ag stakeholders to diversify the corn belt beyond corn and soybeans for a more sustainable future, both environmentally, economically, and socially. As USDA put out calls for sustainable ag systems, a team at Purdue answered an untraditional way. They were looking for transformative projects. And what is more transformative than changing the corn belt. While most Indiana farm fields look like this, Proca P says solely planting corn and soybeans can have environmental consequences, but it also gives farmers fewer options in weathering mother nature. Adding in a third rotation, perennial crops, agroforestry, very broadly defined diversification that does of course include horticultural food crops because there's a lot of interest in growing our own food in this region and we can do that. Over the next five years, fields like this will grow everything from small grains like oats and barley to agroforestry finds such as chestnuts and hazelnuts. It's all diversity dishing out a trove of possibilities. We're going to work with farmers to pick fields that are pretty similar, some with corn soybean rotations, some with other diversified systems, and we're going to look at water quality outcomes, soil health, air quality, economics of those different systems. But those possible cropping systems can only take root with so. demand. My idea is to understand what the market requires. Meet Ariana Torres, who teaches within the Department of Agriculture and Department of Agricultural Economics. Farmers are going to benefit greatly from not only diversifying, but also having off-season off income. 
diversified income streams are going to be very uh, is something that we actually uh, care about. Over the next five years, the team will uncover the infrastructure and markets needed to support shaking up corn and soybean acres across the state. One of the reasons that we have such a big production is because we have red gold. So we have a lot of opportunities to include value added steps throughout the supply chain of specialty crops. From carving out a niche for smaller farmers to produce certain crops to harvesting the data that shows which diversified systems are economically profitable. Hashtag diverse corn belt could be the farm of the future. I think there's an opportunity to engage these young farmers to create enterprises that are going to diversify and have businesses that are going to be more resilient to shocks. Shocks sent from weather and the price of commodities. It's also economically challenging for farmers, very, very dependent on price of commodity crops, very propped up by federal subsidies. And we've talked to lots of farmers. I'm a social scientist, so I've talked to lots of farmers over the years about their frustrations with that system. But the lack of support and lack of policies that help support a transition away from that. Each month, the Ag Economy Barometer shows the roller coaster farmer sentiments ride, largely due to the direction of corn and soybean prices at the time, but also other headwinds like rising input costs and the lack of labor. We need to understand what production systems are going to be profitable or not, depending on the labor market that they have. From farmers being price takers to the possibility that more could soon become price makers. We don't expect to diversify the Corn Belt in five years. We're hoping at the end of the five years we have pathways to diversification, which include policy changes, right? Because we know policy has to change to really support diversification. And so I think that'll be some of the biggest challenges is getting different stakeholders on board with what direction that policy should take. Well, it's not just the team at Purdue rallying around the search for diversity. Organizations like General Mills, Smithfield, Kellogg's, Red Gold, the National Wildlife Federation are also supporting the project. That's along with farmers, the State Department of Agriculture, and Iowa Soybean Association. Well, that may be longer term, but what about shorter term price potential? Our marketing roundtables are back in action next. Your next piece of equipment is on MachineryPete.com. Search equipment from dealerships across the country to find what you're looking for. Only on MachineRepeat.com. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Our ag economists are rejoining us now. Okay, as we head, you know, towards the end of 2021 and head into 2022, Michael, when you have these input prices that are climbing, you're hearing about farmers even, you know, not getting even a price on glyphosate products because they don't even know if they'll be able to source it this next year. When you look at all of the commodities with the input prices today, which one do you think holds the best profit potential at this point? Well, somewhat surprisingly, let me start with 2021, then I'll talk about 2022. Somewhat surprisingly, corn was very profitable. Both corn and soybeans were profitable, but corn was actually more profitable than soybeans uh, in 21. Looking ahead at 22, it's, it's about even. Uh, there really is no advantage towards corn or soybeans, despite the fact uh, that nitrogen prices have, have increased uh, substantially. Uh, we have to remember that uh, you know, for soybeans, cash rent's extremely important expense for soybeans. Uh, it's up to 40% of the cost of production is coming from cash rent. And also, uh, soybeans use a lot of phosphorus and potassium, which are also up, up substantially. So right now, uh, there really isn't an advantage towards corn or soybeans, at least in the Eastern Corn Belt. So when you look at, at the supply and the demand picture for things like corn and soybeans here, Jim, um, what do you think could help propel prices at this point? Is it going to be more on the supply side from places like South America, or will it be on the demand side? South America is still a wild card at this point because we don't really know how that's going to shake out with respect to their planted acreage yet. 
Um, and on the demand side, I think that's really the bigger issue is, is when do we see a, a recovery in, in uh, demand for exports, uh, particularly to China. That's going to be the driver on the soybean side. We're holding up pretty well on the corn side. Um, but a tremendous amount of uncertainty in terms of what this rise in input prices is going to do to production next year. And I think the thing that people are probably most worried about is what's going on with nitrogen. In the short run, we can get by with some minimal applications of P and K, but not nitrogen, at least on corn. So that's going to be the bigger issue here as we continue through the fall and into the winter. Yeah, Michael, I mean, I heard from a producer in Missouri who, uh, you know, this spring, and hydrous ammonia was, I think, $565 a ton. And then this year, his quote was over $1,200. And they're saying it could be closer to $1,400 this spring. Is South America facing some of these same input struggles that we're facing here? I think it could be actually worse uh, in Brazil than it is in the United States. Uh, my understanding is Brazil imports most of their fertilizer needs, even more than we do. Uh, and so I think the situation is just as bad, if not worse, in Brazil uh, as the U.S. They're going to have the same issues that we're having with regard to fertilizer. Well, when you look at these these increased increasing prices, I mean, it's happening everywhere, including at the grocery store. And you look at historic protein demand at a time when we are seeing record prices. Do you think that that can continue, Jason? Um, it's possible it can continue. We've certainly seen uh, you know, very strong increases in retail meat prices year over year. Actually, uh, you know, one big category, bacon, for example, if you look back at the start of the pandemic compared to now, bacon prices are, you know, between 30 and 40% higher today than they were then. And so some of that is demand driven domestically and some of it is demand driven internationally. So we've been talking about China and, um, and they're buying a lot of meat products too. Yes, they're building back their hog herd, but they're buying a lot of meat. Uh, so it's been really strong export demand for our, our meat products. And then all that cost, all the cost issues we're talking about that come through to the animals, both on the feed side, the labor side and the packing plant side, that's being reflected in the meat prices too. Well, the White House mentioning the meat prices again last week in those supply chain meetings, saying that, you know, we've seen protein prices rise quicker than, than, than other commodities. Ha has that indeed been the case? It has. If you look at the overall food CPI, uh, meat has a, a big uh, weight in that. And so when meat prices change, it pushes that over overall CPI. Um, and so it, it, and meat prices have been more volatile than many other food items. So it is true that meat is a big driver of the food CPI. I don't necessarily agree with all the reasons the White, uh, White House report gave for, for why meat prices were rising, but it is certainly the case that meat is a big driver of the overall food price inflation that we're seeing. At this point though, on the protein and the meat side, are you concerned about demand like Jim is for things like soybeans? Is that a concern for you that it'll taper off? It's possible, I mean, you know, uh, this whole food away from home picture, we're starting to see a lot more recovery there. Of course, this Delta variant kind of you know, put us back a bit, right. but I think as restaurants are reopening, people hopefully feeling a little more optimistic to get out and, and eat in the economy, that'll help on the demand side. So I'm, I'm actually a little, a little optimistic. All right, well, Jason, Jim, Michael, thank you so much for joining us this weekend on US Farm Report. We need to take a quick break and then we'll, we will have much more from right here at Purdue. Well, rural communities across the country are continuing to look at ways to not just survive, but thrive. And here at Purdue University, that quest is seeing a new boost. Some focus groups um, later on, so. For 18 years, yes. Maria Marshall has called Purdue University home. I'm an extension specialist, a, a researcher, and a teacher. 
A passion to extend her research program through Purdue Extension, she found her calling in helping family and small businesses recover from disaster. So they could be what we would call a normative shock, like let's say there was a divorce or a death that's unexpected, or a non-normative shock, which could be a tornado or a natural disaster. So first, it's taking stock of like, what are we gonna do? Hopefully they've done some contingency planning, which is something that we would <laughs> tell them to do. But it's taking stock of what are the things that are happening to them, where, uh, how do they get back up and running? Just over a year ago, her passion at Purdue was passed another boost. So the center is the North Central Regional Center for Rural Development, so it's a mouthful. <laughs> we call it the NCRCRD. It's actually one of four sister centers uh, funded by USDA. The center has been around for nearly 50 years years, but just relocated to Purdue a year ago. The main shift is when it comes to economic uh, development and community resilience, there's an extra special emphasis on small business and how small businesses interplay with health, workforce, wellness, civic engagement. Injecting rural communities with economic development is always a need, but since the pandemic, she says that need was amplified. I think right now with the pandemic, we've realized that there are a lot of health inequities um, less access to health care maybe in rural areas, that there's need for workforce development in rural areas to think about job retraining. From grants to help work on the jobs piece to curriculum that can circle the region through extension, the center reaches far beyond the state. Well, we actually have a grant right now working on workforce development and working on career pathways in rural areas. And so we'll be piloting that curriculum to look at those rural pathways here in Indiana and also in Utah. So that's what the center allows us to do is to broaden our reach and then look at what those how those pilots work and then how can we spread that across the country. That's with the goal of increasing civic engagement while turning struggles with labor into tangible work development decisions. I know here our orchards are having a really hard time getting labor to be able to prune apples. And so it might be that say if we were doing it to Bikinu County that we might be looking at what are some career pathways to get young people and veterans maybe to work on orchards. Um, but in Utah, it might be completely different because that region is very different. Answering a need while equipping communities with resources. It continues to put the land grant extension system to work. Answering a major call indeed. Thank you. Well, when we come back, the push to electrify the auto industry here in the U.S. and world just continues to gain speed. But what about adoption? John Phipps rejoins us next. Join Andrew McRae for Farming the Countryside, a farmer-focused podcast all about production agriculture. Brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven, the nitrogen-producing microbes that stay put, whether or not. Visit pivotbio.com. Well, the White House has set a lofty goal to actually electrify half of the new automobiles that hit the road by the year 2030. But how is adoption? Here's John Phipps. From Steve Swan in Northwest Iowa. In 10 years, when over half of the American automobile fleet is electric, ethanol demand will be rapidly declining. Throw on top of that, synthetic meats could have taken over half the market by that point and two of the three legs of corn demand are gone. I farm in northwest Iowa and am extremely concerned about the future of corn farming. Thanks, Steve. Send me an address. 
Electric vehicles, EVs, get a lot of media attention for good reason. Auto companies are investing multi-billions in factories. The EU and China are replacing their fleets much faster. And the prices of batteries and EVs themselves are beginning to match internal combustion, or ICE, vehicles. All the projections I have seen, however, expect EV sales to maybe reach half of all global sales by 2030. The U.S. is much farther behind, and since our fleet average is about 11 years old, auto sales make up less than 10% annually. Reaching 50% EVs on the road will take much longer than 2030. Most projections look something like this. EV sales will be about 4% this year. Their popularity is extremely variable, with California way ahead of the other states and urban dwellers way ahead of rural residents, for obvious reasons. Those smooth curves make mathematical sense in many ways, but I think these curves won't be as regular as predicted because of the bean platform effect. My son traded combines this year and originally intended to get a traditional but wider platform. Our longtime salesman talked him into switching to a draper head at about $30,000 more. My son had decided the difference wasn't worth the cost. After eye-opening rides with neighbors with drapers and persuaded by their testimonials, he gritted his teeth and spent the money. The convincing argument from our salesman was he wasn't sure how much longer he could sell used platforms or even get a new one, severely lowering the trade-in values of that kind of machine. This type of tipping point effect suggests EVs may abruptly see much faster market share gains at some point due to loss of resale value for used ICE vehicles, fewer new ICE vehicle choices, and the loss of infrastructure like mechanics and filling stations. Ernest Hemingway expressed this concept well when one of his characters was asked how he went bankrupt. He replied, gradually at first, then suddenly. For ethanol, I suggest this is how its market will decline. But we're more than a decade from that tipping point, I would guess. Synthetic meat deserves its own analysis at another time. Well, when we come back, we have the inspiring story of one recent Purdue grad who is taking flight. We'll share his story next. Well, when students get to college, they explore clubs, pursue internships, all to find their passion and calling. Well, for Kyle Albertson, it was the purchase of a drone that sparked a career, all while overcoming obstacles along the way. He just graduated in May. It feels good. I've had a really busy summer. And already, Kyle Albertson's yeah. business is taking off. But I offer the rentees of services, which is crop spraying, spreading. I also can do sanitizing of uh, arenas or warehouses. All of which is done with a drone. As of right now, I'm the only one in the state that does the spraying and spreading. He says the business morphed from something that was a project he did for fun. Because I started as a hobby, just taking pictures of arms, this and that. But his time at Purdue turned that passion into a profit. Pretty much all my business classes kind of helped me have a better understanding to how to start my own business, you know, other than just kind of being a hobby. As his business plan was propelled by his ability to think outside the box. I usually tell people three gallons 
but it's a little less. It's about 2.8 gallon, 2.9. I can do about 10 to 15 acres an hour. For this young entrepreneur, he's been overcoming life's obstacles since birth. Some places I can't get out to, you know, like if it's in the middle of a field. But with determination and the grit to succeed, his ability to network and learn shines. No is never a bad answer, you know. It's always good to reach out to people for to try to get business through them, you know. And if they say no, well, you know, it's worth a try and you can always try again. That determination hasn't slowed since he graduated in May. But these drones, I can fly up to three at the same time. With plans to expand. I kind of plan to at some point either purchase another one or two more. And with his sights set on the future, this Purdue alum continues to soar. It makes you feel good when you can see what you planted, that it came up good and the customer's happy and all that. Kyle won the Tyler Trent Courage and Resilience Award last May. Tyler's inspiring story was shared on social and by ESPN in 2018 as his battle with bone cancer never put out his love and passion for Purdue football. After he died in January of 2019, the Tyler Trent Courage and Resilience Award was created. What a story to end on from here at Purdue. Well, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Next weekend, we are back on the road. We're heading to Michigan State. Join us next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.